0: We are in Isaiah 40, looking at verses 1 through 11. As we continue what we're calling an Old Covenant Christmas. You may be having an old-fashioned Christmas plan, or an old country Christmas, or whatever it is you're having at your home. We want to look back at some of these Old Testament passages, Old Covenant passages, and see what waiting on Christ's first advent must have meant for them. And help it to focus us as we celebrate His first coming, and we await His second coming. So let's read together from Isaiah chapter number 40, beginning in verse 1. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her, that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. The voice said, cry. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth and the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. O Zion, that bringeth good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, that bringeth good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold our God. Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arms shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom. and He shall gently lead those that are with young. Let's pray. Father, we ask your blessing upon the reading of your word. We ask your blessing upon the preaching of your word. Come, Holy Spirit, illuminate the word and help us to grow. Lord, we pray that you would do a work this morning that only you can through the power of your word, the power of your Holy Spirit. Bless this time in Jesus name. Amen. Now, as we think about old covenant, new covenant, certainly we are new covenant saints. And we are in that portion of the biblical timeline, but we need to align where we are in the timeline of the Bible that we just read here. Dr. R.C. Sproul helps us to align the timing of what we are studying. He says these prophecies originally delivered more than a century and a half before the end of the exile astonished their audience by predicting Israel's immediate deliverance from Babylon in chapters 44 and 45. The coming of the suffering of Christ to save them from their sins after they return to the land in chapter 42, 49, 50, 52. And most notably, I hope you're familiar with chapter 53, who hath believed our report and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed. And then Israel's final salvation in the last days in chapter number 51. So this is where we are in the timeline of the Bible. Dr. Sproul says Isaiah is teaching that the foundational salvific event in Israel's history now becomes a paradigm for a new salvation event that will be far more significant than even the epical deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt. You just heard Brother Josh talk about that new salvific event. It was pretty epic, wasn't it, Brother Josh? In your life, and in my life as well, and hopefully yours as well. We've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We've experienced His grace for it firsthand. But the writer to the Hebrews tells us about the people in the timeline that we're reading this morning, they all died in faith, having never received this promise. What a unique thing for them, as they await the first coming of the Messiah. Now, of all of the things that Isaiah is writing about in four and, and two here today, we're going to simply focus specifically in on the coming of Christ. Not the second coming of Christ, but we're approaching Christmas time. And we're celebrating that God was with us, that he was born a baby in a manger, and that he was born to die for the sins of the world. And so we focus on that portion of it here today. So in verses 1 through 11, we find comfort, preparation. These are what these words are. God gives comforting words to a prophet alongside the command, you speak comfort, speak tenderly to my people. Next, he is told, prepare the way, then trust the word, and then finally share the good news. And I want to use those as our headings today as we go through these verses. Speak comfort, prepare the way, trust the word, share the good news. In verses one and two, we find Isaiah being told of God, speak comfort to my people. Let's revisit those verses. Comfort she. Hear the voice of God here. He's He's speaking directly to his prophet Isaiah. And then Isaiah shares this with God's people. And it's pinned down. And you and I are able to share it even now. But this is still God's word as he gave it to his man. He says, comfort ye. Comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. God has granted a pardon to His people, Israel. And Isaiah is to tenderly communicate this to them. He will be for God, the voice of pardon to God's people. Now, I want you to notice here in that first verse there, the pronouns, my and your. Right off the bat, God is clear as He talks about His people, that they are His people and that He is their God. He says, Comfort my people, saith your God, in spite of the judgment, in spite of the desolation, in spite of them choosing idols and committing grave sins to the point that God had to bring judgment upon them. He didn't stop calling them His people. He does not stop being their God. And His first word of comfort through His prophet is, I'm still your God and you're still my people. Comfort my people, He says here. Though they have rebelled in sin... They're still God's people. He's still their God. So comfort them. Comfort them with these thoughts he says in verse 2. The burden of sin is ending. The price for sin has been paid. And his people has received double from his hand. I want to break down those three things from verse 2. First, that the burden of sin is ending. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished. In saying her warfare is accomplished, Isaiah is saying the people's service has been completed. The severe trials related to their sinning is over. In the Pilgrim's Progress, the author John Bunyan wanted to describe a way that a person feels when under the conviction of the guilt of sin. If you've read the book, and especially if you've seen the, the more modern cartoon film that they put together for this. Yes, I get my theology from cartoons. It's also where I learn about the finer things in life. All the classical music I know comes from... Uh, oh. Okay, Charlie Brown, I'll give you that. I don't know what somebody said over here. What did you say? Tom and Jerry, Tom and Jerry yes. I was going to say Bugs Bunny. One of the happiest days of my life. They did Bugs Bunny at the symphony, and I got to go. It was great. Are you guys not Elmer Fudd? <laughs> kill the wabbit, kill... The, okay, all right. Now I'm just embarrassing my life. There's people here. <laughs> In that movie, John Bunyan, it, it, he, he wanted to describe what that, that bird and that guilt of sin. If you've seen the movie, Pilgrim's climbing, he's trying to climb up to the cross, right? But he's got that, that just this growth on his back. It, almost, it starts out looking sort of like a... The hunchback of Notre Dame, this like tumor looking thing. But before long, it's almost like this cocoon on on his back. (laughs) But finally, when he just gives up on his own and he just puts his faith in the cross, that person is lifted. Bunyan did a good job uh, taking care of this as he describes this heavy burden, which Christian can only manage to rid himself of through the cross. God tells Isaiah here, comfort my people. Because the burden of their sin is ending. Now, go back to the time frame of this, and this is why I read from you from Dr. Sproul. We understand for God's people then, Isaiah would be speaking to them in the literal sense, physically. Your burden for your sin is ending. I'm going to send you through some judgment, but it won't last forever and it'll get over with. Babylon is your fate for now, but soon you'll be back in your promised land. But we understand in the spiritual sense, that was pointing us toward Jesus and you and I now live in this time where we, we've experienced Jesus' cross and we understand then this is not just a physical foretelling of a historical thing. This is a historical thing that actually did happen and now the thing that it was foretelling has happened. What do we call a prophet whose prophecies come true? It's not that difficult. True prophet. What do you call a prophet whose prophecies don't come true? Yeah, that's right. So God says here, the burden of sin is ending. You and I live and breathe knowing that the burden of sin has ended. But I, I think at times we lose sight of that fact. I think at times we won't forgive ourselves. Though God says in spite of your sinning, you're still my people and I'm still your God and I've made a way for this burden to go away from you. Are you sitting here this morning beating yourself up? Did you come in this morning to Penitent, pious, almost feeling good and holy about yourself because you're feeling pretty crummy and guilty about yourself. Oh, I'm such a horrible sinner. Often this turns to judgmentalism as we sit in church and we see somebody smile or we see somebody raise their hand or we see somebody's eyes begin to water. And we'll say to ourselves, who do they think they are? It doesn't matter who they think they are. I'll tell you who they are. They're God's people. And the burden of their sin has ended. The price has been paid. Notice what else he says. Speak comfortably. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished. That her iniquity is pardoned. For sin to be forgiven, it must be atoned for. This is something that humankind struggles with. Would you forgive me? Yeah, I forgive you. But then that still hangs around our brains, doesn't it? It's hard for us to truly to forgive because we struggle to forget. And it's hard for us to move on past it because it's just it's always forever with us. But for some reason, God writes as if it's not this way with him. Well, how can it be different for God? Well, atonement is the answer. Her iniquity has been pardoned. God has taught his people this from the very beginning. Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. And how did God make this right? He took an animal. He shed some blood. Did that animal deserve that? Did the animal turn against God? Was the animal worthy of death? No, Adam was worthy of death. God shed that innocent blood to do this. Now, was this God saying, this is how you need to take care of it from now on? No, this was God saying, all the way back in the beginning of Genesis, There's a day coming where I'm going to do this myself. And it will once and for all atone for sins. Hebrews chapter number 9 verse 22 clarifies this. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without shedding of blood is no remission. This is what Isaiah goes on to clearly tell in Isaiah chapter number 53. That the guilt of sin can only be satisfied through the substitution of another. Listen to Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Speaking of the Lamb, Jesus. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we are healed. In the 11th century, a monk named Anselm of Canterbury. Anybody here wish you had a name like that? This is Chance of White Bluff. Those of you who lived in, live in Hickman County are glad we don't do that, aren't you? This is Joy of Hickman County. Aren't you glad, Miss Joy? Praise the Lord. We just call you Joy. <laughs> Anselm of Canterbury recorded this thought. Listen to what he says. It's great. He said, there is no one who can make this satisfaction except God himself. But no one ought to make it except man. Otherwise, man does not make satisfaction. Therefore, it is necessary that one who is God-man should make it. He's exactly right. That's not Scripture. And he hasn't really figured out Scripture yet when he writes this. He's just saying, God didn't do anything. God didn't sin. Man sinned. Man should make the satisfaction of God's wrath. But man can't make the satisfaction of God's wrath. So there should be a God-man. Well, that brings us to the next statement that Isaiah was to share for comfort. See, God had already figured this out. God had already planned this. God had already arranged for the new and the better Adam come to take the sins of man. So he tells them, sin's burden is great. The the price has been paid. Why? Look at verse number two. For she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now certainly we could understand this to mean that Israel's time of judgment is over since these people have endured God's judgment. But the problem that brings into the theological context here is it, it could almost then be determined that human penitence and punishment will appease the wrath of God. I can illustrate this through Josh's testimony earlier. Did jail get you off drugs? Did police stop you from doing crime? No. Did gun laws keep you from having an illegal gun? (laughs) Funny how that is. Did they comfort you that other people couldn't have guns and you could? (laughs) Sorry, pushing the political agenda here, aren't I? Now was it wasn't jail. wasn't the law. What was it, Josh? Jesus Christ. See, we, we, we mustn't misunderstand the Old Testament. If you, if you lived in Old Testament days and, and you heard Isaiah saying this and you were to understand it just in that way, our punishment is over. Fine. But church, you live in 2022. You have the full account of God's Word in your hand. You can read it from beginning to end and come to understand the full meaning of it. What is one process, one thought that goes from Genesis to Revelation in the whole Bible? It's redemption. So when we read this, we have to know this is a story about redemption. So if I just sat down and I read Genesis to Revelation, I should conclude that, oh man, we're great sinners, but He's a great Savior. And so we have here this understanding that we, God's people, have received double from His hand. It doesn't mean that human penitence and punishment can appease the wrath of God. No, that just means that's the outcome for humans who will not repent. You want to be penitent for eternity? You want to feel the punishment of God for eternity because of the things you've done? Well, then deny God's grace. Fail to repent. Be almost persuaded. And you can. There is eternal damnation for you. I don't want that. The church doesn't want that. Jesus surely doesn't want that. He went to the cross for you to satisfy God's wrath. A sinless sacrifice is required. We could also understand what he has said here. The double for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for her sins. We could understand that to mean that Israel has received God's judgment, but also his blessing. That would be a good interpretation here. It fits. It's fine. But it leads off immediate context because what does he go on to say in verse three? The voice of him that cries in the wilderness. Now, who's that talking about? John the baptizer. Now, if you're an Israelite, then you don't know who John the Baptist is. But if you're a Baptist, especially in 2022 in Kingston Springs, Tennessee. Somebody says, why are y'all Baptists? Well, John was a Baptist. (laughs) And he baptized Jesus. So Jesus was a Baptist. I'm just kidding. This is not real. This is not why we are the way we are. I was telling that joke recently in the car. One of my kids was like, Dad, that's just stupid. I was like, Well, it's a funny joke. But we, we understand the immediate context. They're pointing us to something here. God is telling Isaiah, Tell my people this. And he's not saying to them, That they can be penitent enough and be punished enough to satisfy my wrath. And he's not saying to them here, you've experienced my judgment. Now you've experienced my blessing and all is well. No, it's not what he's saying here. God's people are also about to be told. There's going to be somebody crying in the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord. God's people receiving double from his hand is a reference. We're already looking for a double, remember? We need a God-man. It's a reference to that double, the God man, God with us, dying for us to redeem us to himself. The Hebrew term that here in the English is is written out K-E-P-E-L. It's pronounced K-F-E-L. And it is often translated into the English missing one little article, one little three letter word that should always go with it when you go from Hebrew to the English. And that word is the If you wanted to hoop and holler and shout, you said you're going to run a lap around the church this morning, Josh. Here's here's your time to do it. When you leave out the the, this wonderful, grand theological term, the, T-H-E, Then all you read and hear, understood here, is that we've received double for all of our sins. But if you translate it right, you put in there. We've received of the Lord's hand the double for our sins. Who is the double for our sins? The God-man. Jesus Christ. In the book of Job, this is translated the same way. Job chapter 41, verse 5. And it talks about the double of his jaw. Maybe to help us understand more what's going on here. You understand the double of your jaw. And the double of your jaw, there's what? Two parts. What's this part? Top, and this is... Oh, you are more technical than me. The upper and the lower. I just said top and bottom. But now, if we were walking through the woods today and we found the jawbone of an animal, but it was just the bottom, what would you call that? You still call it the jaw. It's all right. You just say, well, oh, there's a jawbone. But in reality, truthfully, for it to be... The jaw, it'd have to be the double, the top and the bottom here. So in Job's time, now that doesn't point us to Jesus, all right? This is just a proof text to help us understand the biblical use of the Hebrew term kethel, which means the double. So what is God saying here? You have a man, but not God. That leaves you only with judgment. But God is coming in the form of the God-man, and you will be left with His righteousness in place of your own. You have received the double for all of your sins. Jesus Christ is the double. Like Sproul says, like an actor's double. Jesus Christ is our stand-in. We couldn't get on the cross for ourselves. We would have died in vain, but the stand-in stood in our place as a Propitiation to satisfy God's wrath. The substitutionary atonement. And took away our sins from us. Praise God for the double. Speak comfortably to my people. Tenderly tell her. Her warfare is accomplished. Her iniquity is pardoned. She's received the double for all of her sins. Now an Israelite in Isaiah's day is going to struggle. Well, What's Isaiah talking about here? I thought this guy was half crazy. You and I and our day, we're aware of John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believed in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Oh, we know exactly what Isaiah is saying here. We have received the double. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Isaiah also said that. Chapter 53, verse 6, he says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Can you hear the voice of God here in Isaiah's prophecy? Isaiah, comfort my people. You tell them that sin's burden is great, but that the price has been paid. My people have received the double from my hand. John Calvin wrote here, he said, by this exhortation, the Lord intended to stir up the hearts of the godly, that they might not faint. First, he addresses the Jews who were soon to be carried into that hard captivity in which they should have neither sacrifices nor profits and would have been destitute of all consolation and had not the Lord relieved their miseries by these predictions. Next, he addresses all the godly that should live afterwards or that shall yet live to encourage their hearts even when they shall appear to be reduced very low and to be utterly ruined. Let us all strive to be such comforters in our living. We know these things just as Isaiah was told them. We've been told them in God's word as well. Let us comfort God's people. A.E. Hamilton penned this little poem and he speaks well to this point. Ask God to give thee skill and comforts art. That thou mayest consecrated be and set apart into a life of sympathy. For heavy is the weight of ill in every heart, and comforters are needed much of Christ like touch. Lester Roloff, not so poetic, said, Be nice to everybody because everybody's going through something. It's true. Isaiah was to comfort God's people, chance is to comfort God's people. You are to comfort God's people. And you have the tools to do it here. The next thing he tells them in verse 3, 4, and 5 is to prepare the way. So speak comfort and then prepare the way. In his providence, God has a plan and is at work for the good of his own. Notice verse 3, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. I do like that terminology. I don't have time to spend much in it this morning. But if you want to do a, a great word study in the book of Isaiah, just look up all the instances of highway. You came here this morning. It's Unless you live on Butterworth Road, which a lot of you do, it's impossible to get here outside of a highway. And when you come across that highway you're thankful that in certain places they made it straight. And in certain places they made it flat. And in certain places, instead of making you go up and down, they put across a bridge. They paved the way. And this is what the messenger of the Lord was supposed to do. John the Baptist would preach in the wilderness a baptism of repentance in preparation of the coming Messiah. It's also wonderful to think. At the time that John was born. You kind of end the old covenant writings hearing that a Savior would come. You begin the New Covenant writings and, and an angel's talking to a, a priest named what? What's the priest's name? Zechariah. is old. He passed the time of having children. But he says, you're going to have a son. And his name will be John. Israel had spiritually gone back to the wilderness. God had brought them out of Egypt. God had brought them over to their promised land. But in their hearts, they were back in the wilderness and they were longing for Egypt. Where does God send his prophet? Where does this messenger go to preach? To the wilderness. Aren't you glad God will send somebody to where you are? Aren't you glad the word of God will come where you are? Tell you what you need to hear? Praise the Lord. Verse 3 tells us that God has a plan and that he's working it. His messenger. Would come in preparation. Verse four: Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. If you do all that, what do you got left? Think about it. Every mountain and hill made low, so the high things low, the crookeds made straight, the rough place is plain. It's smooth sailing. God's messenger is going to come and he's going to preach a baptism of repentance unto preparation. And through what he does and what he brings in, this highway will be formed. Many obstacles would be overcome for the coming of the Messiah. I would just say simply, that's the Old Testament. Why is all this happening in the Old Testament? Why is the good happening and the bad happening and the judgment of God and the blessing of God and all of these things going on in the Old Testament? This is God paving the way. And then verse 5, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed after this. So there will be preparation made. And after the preparation is made, then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. This is John 1, 14, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. For those in Isaiah's day, the remainder of the Old Testament would be the anticipation of this coming. Even more so in patient long-suffering as what would later be viewed as providence. See, we look back on it now and we say, oh, that was God working in His providence. The hard times, the good times, the bad times, the lean times, the rich times, all of these things together was just God working in His providence. You see, providence is never our roadmap. It's our history book. When you're living in the middle of what will later be seen as God's providence, what do you call it? A valley? Circumstances? Bad times? Today? Tomorrow? This is what I'm going through? This is what I'm facing? We never call it providence. We never look around at our life and all the things that we're facing and all the things that are going on and say, praise the Lord for His providence, for His working on me. No, we don't do it like that. We say these are our circumstances. We, in our current circumstance, find ourselves glorying in the first advent, awaiting the second advent. Warren Wiersbe wrote, someone has defined circumstances as those nasty things you see when you get your eyes off God. If you look at God through your circumstances, He will seem small and very far away. But if by faith, you look at your circumstances through God, he will draw very near and reveal his greatness to you. So let us live as the great preacher G. Campbell Morgan so well observed. The faithful among men prepare his way and make straight his highway when they yield to him their complete loyalty and confide in him alone. Today it's a circumstance. But tomorrow, as you look back, it's God's providence. So comfort my people. Prepare the way. And then verse 6 through 8 tell us to trust the word. The voice said, cry. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. God's Word is sure. God's Word is trustworthy. And God's Word forever stands. It's it's often too simplistic for us in our complicated lives. We're complex creatures. We have complex structures. We have all of these just complex manipulations going on in our lives. And when we hear, just trust the Word. Use Brother Josh in my illustration again. You said, we don't deal with in church. We don't deal with medication. We don't we just treat with Jesus. What's your tool? It's the word. The word. I used to go out on Saturday mornings. I've seen Josh and his PJs. <laughs> I would go out there on Saturday mornings. I said, What do you want me to do? Josh would say, Just teach us the word, man. I'll tell you those they were better listeners than you guys. Y'all are already looking at your watches. I'd be teaching out there on Saturday morning, looking at my watch, and they'd be like, Come on. Keep going, buddy. (laughs) Trust the word. Don't let that be too simplistic for you. He says here the the Holy Spirit blew, like the Holy Spirit blew upon the grass. That's why they they move. So we have the word. As the Holy Spirit breathed it along from man to man, they pinned it down and, and we passed it along, and here we have it. Through the Holy Spirit's inspiration, we have God's Word. And this is what we are to rely upon. The Spirit and the Word. Trust in it. In contrast, we often trust in human life. In human reasoning. and human ways of doing things. But human life is like the flower. It is like the grass. It is here today and gone tomorrow. These poinsettias are beautiful. They bright up the place. They put a pop of color into the air. But I'll tell you, the ladies that put these out here work hard to keep them living through December 25. Amen, ladies? Because soon enough, they're going to shrivel up and die. But the Word of God stands forever. There is comfort to be found in simply trusting the Word and its message. Derek Thomas wrote, At the heart of the message was to be the truth that no matter what changes may take place in the world, God's word stands forever. God can be trusted to keep his word, come what may. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, we learn that the word is Christ. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. And it was life, and the life was the light of men. And then I've already read to you verse 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So when we hear Isaiah saying here, just trust in the Word, what is he saying there? Yes, the Scriptures for sure, but church, don't be such a Bible believer that you say, I trust the Bible, but you forget to trust what it says. What does the Scripture say? This is what you're trusting in in this context. That the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ, the baby born in a manger, is the double. He's the stand-in for all of our sinning. So trust the Word. So Isaiah says, speak comfort, prepare the way, trust the Word. Last one. Speak the good news. Verse 9, 10, and 11. O Zion. And and you get several instances here of different people being told, give good tidings. (laughs) O Zion that bringeth good tidings, get thee up unto the mountain. O Jerusalem. So you have the people, right? Zion is a people. And then you have Jerusalem, it's a city. O Zion that bringeth good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength, lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord will come with a strong hand, and his arm will rule for him. So speak comfort, prepare the way, trust the word, share this good news. These good tidings do truly bring us comfort and joy. It is news of peace on the earth. Verse 9 addresses, you who bring good tidings. This, This little phrase there, you who bring good tidings, is actually one word in the Hebrew. The Greek equivalent to that one Hebrew word is evangelist. You who bring good tidings. Evangelism is speaking to others about God. What He's like, what He threatens to do, what He promises to those who love His Son. Share this good news. Be the evangelist. Now, verse 10 and 11 give us a contrast. Verse 10, if you, if you just picked up verse 10 out of your Bibles and held it up and what it said, well, then you find the, the Lord God omnipotently reigning, all-powerful. Behold, the Lord God will come with a strong hand. His arms shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. But in verse 11, you pick that one up and you read it and you get a totally different picture. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. Those don't really mix well, do they? I mean, if, I, if I brought a, a mighty warrior up here this morning, should have brought you pictures, do you have to look at me while I said this? Big muscles. You know, gritty jaw. <clears throat> Maybe a sword or a machine gun. He's a, he's, a, he's a kingly warrior because he's conquered and he's earned his place and he rules and reigns and you bow down in fear. And I said to him, now, this is your shepherd. He's going to cuddle you and he's going to love on you and he's going to make you feel so nice. You would say, I don't think so. Get him to wipe his tobacco off his face first before he tries to cuddle. It's a mix, does it? It's a unique thing that we find here. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. We started that way, didn't we? Comfort. Comfort ye, my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. So the Lord God will rule with a strong hand, but he will also lead his sheep like a shepherd. It's hard for us to imagine the same people, same person being able to do both. But Jesus is that person. He is the God man. Here we get to see the power and the tenderness of our God. Romans chapter 11 verse 22 speaks to that. Behold, therefore, the goodness and the severity of God on them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou shalt be cut off. Church, I think we should be like our God in this sense. Gentle and tender. Yes, He reigns and we are ruling and reigning with Him, but, but there's still comfort to be had. And there's still a time and a calls for tenderness and gentleness. Isaiah was told by God to operate this way. Speak comfort. Speak tenderly to my people. This is comfort and preparation. Speak comfort, prepare the way, trust the word, share the good news. There's a lot of comfort for the church in these verses. But I wonder this morning as I share these things with you, are we leaning on God's providence or are we simply overcome with our circumstance? Warren Wearsby had a long-term radio ministry and get cards and letters in, you know, Someone wrote this one day and sent it in to him. It's simple, but it does make a good point. Look at others and be distressed. Look at yourself and be depressed. Look to God and you'll be blessed. But how are you living your, your life right now? You're looking around at your circumstances and say, oh, this is so depressing? Are you looking around at the world we live in and say, oh, this is so distressing? Is your hope in Jesus? Are your eyes on Him? Isaiah passed along comfort to you and I, God's people. And the comfort is clear. The burden for our sin is over. It has been atoned for. The double has stood in our place. The God-man, the babe born in a manger, lived a sinless life. And as an adult willingly went to a cross and laid down his life like a sheep to a slaughter. He didn't open his mouth. When he said it is finished, it was finished. Are you letting it be finished this morning? Are you being victorious in this life? Are you saying, well, and just fill in the blank. I don't know what it is for you. Hard times, money, my weight. Not your weight time at the doctor's office. I mean, like you're feeling fat. We giggle, but these things distress us. I mean, we go from something as heavy as God became flesh and died on a cross for our sins to I'm just so discouraged over and we just fill in the blank. And I hope in this context, you're, you're thinking about your scenario and saying that is kind of foolish to be worried over these things. Because it is. You're the church. You are his people. You're going to face hard times. This is not saying smooth sailing and prosperity from here on out. Even the most prosperous are still going to face some hard times. Israel at times were the most prosperous on the face of the world, but then at other times were conquered. Jesus has done the conquering, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. But in our living and dying, there's going to be good times and there's going to be bad times, but that doesn't change who our God is and that we are His people. So comfort you, my people. Say of their God, our God. Let's stand in prayer.